Our gospel reading this morning comes to us from Luke, chapter 3. going to go verses 1 through 6. Let's see, is that a little bit ringy? That might come down a little bit. Thank you. Um, All right, Luke 3, 1 through 6. In the 15th year, the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is the gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, um, I maybe ended up in a strange place this week, thinking about this gospel reading. The place my mind went uh, was the opening of the 1970s disco classic Saturday Night Fever. Um, And I promise you, I've not watched the whole movie. I heard somewhere that it was rated R. And so, uh, (laughs) but the opening scene, the opening scene has Tony Manero, uh, this working class, uh, you know, it's a John Travolta character, uh, this working class Italian walking through the Bay Ridge neighborhood of Brooklyn, right? And he's dressed up. His heels are clicking to the feet of the Bee Gees. Um, I can tell by the way he walks. Right? As he's sort of clicking down the street, his heels are hitting at the platform shoes. That opening scene comes up. He's carrying a paint can for whatever reason, right? But what's he worried about? He's got a paint can in his hand. But the thing he's worried about um, is platform shoes in the window, the silk shirt that he comes across, right? It's this scene of contrast. That whole movie, that whole story of uh, Tony Manero comes from an article by a guy named Nick Cohn who wrote about these disco guys. <laughs> and the, the person of Tony is based off this character called Vincent from the article. He's 18 and a half and he's convinced that he's old at 18 and a half. He does what he should all week long. But again, there's been sort of this transition in the world where it's the mid to late 1970s now. It's no longer the 1960s. We're not riding on that sort of hippie freedom, right? But we've pulled back in the United States, especially in places like Bay Ridge and Brooklyn. We've pulled back into recession. We've pulled back into fear. We've let go of all of our natural fibers and everybody is decked out head to toe in polyester. (laughs) And the feeling, the feeling that Nick Cohen talks about is this feeling of waking up, even at 18 and a half, waking up every day to do what you're supposed to do all day long, 
Nick or, or Tony Monero here, even living with his parents, working in this paint store. And then it's this brief little glimpse, this brief little flash that you get on Friday or Saturday night to go dance, to go blow off steam, to go kind of be who you are. And you get to live in this place that is totally run by people like you, by people in your situation. He describes Vincent and says this. Once inside the club, the faces, talking about people like Vincent, were unreachable. Nothing could molest them. They were no longer oppressed, wretched teen menials who must take orders toe the line. Here they took command. They reigned. It's a fascinating picture. I love genealogies in the Bible. I love when the Bible opens up and says, and then was born blah, the son of blah, the son of blah, then it goes down this whole line. And I love those genealogies about as much as everybody else hates those genealogies because if you pay attention to them, they tell you so much about the world that's being talked about. They tell you so much about the world that's being expressed. And so what's the genealogy that we get here in Luke? And remember, this is actually the second genealogy, the second time in Luke's gospel that he's done this for us. He does it right at the beginning in the Christmas story. He's now going to do it again in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. He goes all the way. Where does he start? He starts in Rome. He starts with Tiberius, the Caesar, the king, the emperor of the world. He starts with the center. He starts with the very core of power and influence and authority and, and military might. You know that scene at the beginning of Saturday Night Fever? You know what the first shot actually is? It's not of Tony Monero walking down the street in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. It's of Manhattan. It's of Manhattan. It's of the skyline of Manhattan and the skyscrapers and the power and everything that's going on in the center of New York City. And then the camera pans out and, and tracks along the Brooklyn Bridge and comes down that bridge and goes over those houses that are in Brooklyn and then scans over them until all of a sudden now you come down to the feet of a guy who's struggling to figure out how to live in a poor immigrant neighborhood. And Luke has done the same kind of thing. Let me start with Tiberius Caesar. Let me start with the guy who runs the world. And then we're going to pan out. We're going to get all the way to this little corner of the world in Judea. We're going to move all the way through the governors and the people who would reign and rule in those sorts of places. And we're going to get all the way down to that. And instead of focusing on them, the feet that we hear clicking on the sidewalk are not even actually on the sidewalk. The feet that we hear clicking are sandals in the desert sand, our sandals in the wilderness. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah. We've left the center. We've left, in the way the world sees it, we've left the places that decisions get made, and we've ended up in places where people feel like they just work all week until they get a little glimpse of time to blow off steam. 
We've left the places where they try to do everything that they're supposed to do. <laughs> and instead, they end up in places where they're told what they have to do. We here in Luke's gospel now are in the wilderness. We're in the place where it's the norm to struggle. We're in the place where it's normal to be having a hard time. We're in the place where you're just trying to figure out how to survive. And I think a big part of the point that Luke wants to make here is that that's where our focus should be directed. The Christian life is a life in the wilderness. The Christian life, although it can be lived in the center of power, the primary sort of focus of Christian life is not in Manhattan. The primary focus of Christian life is not in Rome. And we actually want to see what God's up to. When we want to see what God is doing, where do we look? We look out into the desert where people are struggling. And what we find is a people who have been prepared with a certain set of habits and practices to get through. In the late 1970s in Brooklyn, it's disco. Okay, I, I think that only lasted like two years, right? And then it was pretty much gone. But, but for that brief period of time, right, it was disco. Disco is what got you through the week. But for the people of God who are a wilderness people, a people of God who wander in the desert, a people of God who get brought out of Egypt and brought through the Red Sea and sent out into where? Into the wilderness. God has patterned and taught and enabled his people to be able to live in these difficult places and still receive the truth, still receive the Messiah, still receive the one who is coming. Because we can so often get to this place where we feel like that because our life is not going the way it ought to go, there's no way for us to receive what God has for us. Because we're struggling, because we're hurting, because we don't feel like we have internal peace, then there's no way for God to say what he really wants to say to me. And the truth is exactly the opposite. That's the place that God speaks is in the wilderness. That's the place that God sends his word. He sends his prophets right to that place. And John, it tells us, comes proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Cody will give us some specifics about that next week. But, And I, I mentioned last week, this time of Advent, these four weeks before Christmas, I know we often think of them as a time for parties and cookies and all this kind of thing, but, but the Gospels actually sort of direct our attention instead back to the Old Testament. And so John comes in the wilderness and he comes wearing camel hair, right? He comes with a leather belt. He comes eating locusts and honey. He comes looking, if you're a really smart reader of the Old Testament, which I'm not, somebody had to tell me about this, but <laughs> he comes looking exactly like the prophet Elijah. He comes out of nowhere, and Elijah comes out of nowhere. And he comes speaking to the kings, and Elijah comes speaking to the kings. The king in Elijah's day was Ahab. He had this wicked wife named Jezebel, and Elijah had all kinds of things to say to Ahab and to Jezebel. They come out of nowhere from the wilderness to preach to a people who have been oppressed by their king. 
And then the words that it gives us here in Luke 3, the words that it gives us are actually the words of not Elijah, but of Isaiah from chapter 40. The message that had been preached to Israel when they had suffered for their rebellion. And they'd been exiled and sent off to Babylon. And the words that John speaks, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the ways of the Lord, make his path straight. These are words that come from a sermon from Isaiah that starts like this. Comfort, comfort, oh my people. When you're living in the wilderness, and you're paying attention to the word of God, you're paying attention to the way that God speaks, the message that comes is comfort. The practice that comes along with that, the thing you're supposed to do, is repentance. And the promise is the Messiah. The message that comes from these prophets is comfort. People, I know you've been suffering. I know you've been having a hard time. I know the people who are over you have not been doing their job well. They have not been good kings. They've been making it hard for you rather than easy for you. They've not been doing their job. Comfort, comfort, oh my people. But in the meanwhile, while you're being comforted, please know also that you've got something you need to do. John comes preaching a baptism of repentance. You are to live a life of repentance. Even while you wait for the Messiah, even though your problems are not your fault necessarily, even though all of this stuff, you've got to live this life of repentance. Why? Because as Christians, as believers in God, we always live a life of repentance. We always live a life that says, this is who I am and that's who God is and I know there's a big gap in between us. And because there's a big gap in between us, I'm going to repent, not just to say I'm really, really sorry for my sins, right? but also to say, Lord, I know you have something to grow in me. Lord, I know you've got work you want to do in me. Lord, I know you want to lift me up. I may be forgiven, but I also need to be strengthened, right? I may be clean from my guilt, but I also need to be sanctified and grow into something better. And both of those things together are repentance. It's both forgiveness for things that I've done and paying attention to God so that I might become the person that God has actually created to me, me to be, which I promise is a lot better than I am right now. So we can say like the blind man, Lord, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Allow me to grow in you. Israel, as John comes to them, is, is facing this kind of in-house exile. Which I think is part of what's so fascinating about the situation Christmas. They're in the promised land, right? If you know the story of the Old Testament, if you know the story of Israel, you know the story of Moses and Abraham and all of these, they're, they're where they're supposed to be. They are living in the boundaries that they're supposed to be living in. And yet they're not in charge. They're not self-determined. They're not autonomous. They, they don't run their own lives. Somebody else runs their life. And so often I think a lot of us are right there. We're in this kind of in-house exile. 
We are in theory where we're supposed to be. Right? But it still feels like Rome. It still feels like Babylon. It still feels like Egypt is running the show. And this can create problems for us. We live in a non-ideal situation. Our boss doesn't treat us right. Our spouse doesn't do what they should. Not mine. Everyone else's spouse. Right? <laughs> okay. We're supposed to get an inheritance from the aunt or uncle, and then they skip us and pass it on to somebody else. The government's not doing what the government ought to do. Our neighbors sure aren't acting the way they should. They put up those stupid Christmas decorations again already. We live in a non-ideal situation. There are things in our lives that are not how they ought to be. And if we keep our eyes fixed on the problems, it's so easy to begin to believe that we live in this sort of in-house exile. It's so easy to believe that somebody else is in charge. And that the fact that we're not, that we're not in the ideal circumstance is the most important thing. And if God would just fix those circumstances, then all would be good. But remember, the message is comfort, the practice is repentance, the promise is the Messiah. The message is comfort, comfort, oh my people, even when things are not how they ought to be, even when things are not yet fully right. The practice, go to the Lord in prayer and supplication. Turn to the Lord in fasting and in hope. Come to him in the knowledge that he wants to do something in you. He wants to do something in this church. He wants to do something in our neighborhood and in our world. And the promise, the thing that's going to make all of that happen is this Messiah who is coming. This Messiah who's going to show up. Advent is a time where we look back to the first coming of Christ in a manger so that we can remember the second coming of Christ. It's not just all sweet and nice and cinnamon and gingerbread. It's also this casting our eyes forward to the moment like we sang in days of Elijah, behold, he comes riding on the clouds. This is a moment where we look at our world and we say, God will make all things right. God will make all things just. God will take all those moments and places and things and people that are not ideal and he will put it right. Paul had something to say to the Corinthians when he got to the end of that passage. Did you hear what Carol read? Would you rather that I come with a rod? Would you rather that I come with discipline? And that's just the pastor speaking to his church. Imagine the Lord speaking to his creation. There will be judgment, and I know that might be hard to say, but you know what? That's good news. That's good news because it means that everything that is broken in this world does not continue forever. It means that where there is racism and where there is economic inequality and where there's brokenness and where there are people taking and using the weak for their own purposes, God will bring judgment in those places. What's our practice? Our practice is repentance that we don't become the kind of people who are stuck in that same way of living so that we don't experience that judgment, so that we don't experience that rod.
how can we become the kind of people whose very lives proclaim to the world that there is a Messiah who is coming? Who, when they look at us, think, man, they must know something I don't know. They must have some kind of tip, some kind of knowledge about what's going to happen that I don't have. Talking to a friend yesterday who came to Christ, became a Christian after being raised kind of a secular Hindu. Became a Christian because he lived with his family. And he said, we never opened up the Bible and read it together. We never had Bible study. But they forgave each other. They forgave each other. They didn't live with anger. They didn't let these little petty slights burn and simmer. They lived this life of forgiveness. They lived this life of grace. Some of them forgiving massive, massive things because they knew that they had been forgiven themselves. In the scripture, we're talking about so much more than these petty kind of personal dramas. You heard the words of the prophet Malachi. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Well, I didn't say ye. We've updated our translation. But it's too good to, you can't, I, you can't get the King James out of, some, <laughs> out of some of these verses, right? Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Right? Get it ready. Get it straight. Malachi says this before the Messiah comes. He says this to a people who have returned from Babylon, come back to the land of Israel, and still, he says, prepare the way of the Lord. And here's the good news. We don't need to leave our wilderness to do the thing that we've been called to do. We don't need to get our lives straight before we can do the thing that God has asked us to do. We don't have to live our lives in an ideal situation before we can begin to prepare his way. We can do it right where we are. We do it right where we are. Straighten the paths, he says. Fill the valleys, lower every mountain. Now, this I know we hear this language every year. This is not about like strip mining mountains, you know, and filling in valleys and making the world just a big flat parking lot, okay? That's not what the prophets are saying or telling us to do. This is a call to humility, to bringing low the lofty. It's a call to justice, to raising up the lowly. You get that? It's a call to truth. It's a call to beauty. It's a call to confession. The image I have here is that in order for the king, the Lord, to enter into his kingdom, we've got road work to do, okay? Highway 50 right now, if you go west of Bradshaw, they've got it all torn up and the lane's going every which way, right? They're doing road work. Imagine what it's going to take for the Lord to come into our lives, for the Lord to come into our world, for the Lord to come into your family and into your home. And to be comfortable. What kind of road work does it take? When the Lord comes riding on the clouds, is he going to get down that freeway? And then he's going to have to all of a sudden stop and go, wait a second, there's potholes. I got to get out of the car. 
and I got to scrape out the hole, and I got to heat up the asphalt and pour it in and tamp it down and smooth it out and let it cool, and then I can keep going for another mile or so. And then I got to do more road work, right? I got to get out and I got to make sure that this thing gets straightened out, this on-ramp gets put up, and I just, every, all along the way, is Jesus going to have to be doing all of this road work, or is the freeway going to be made ready? Is the freeway going to be set that he can just fly down the road into your life, into your neighborhood, into your family, into your home, into your heart? To what extent is Jesus comfortable in your life already? Our lives as Christians are to be these kinds of preparatory road crews. (laughs) Not building the kingdom. but building the way that the king will come. We're still in the wilderness, but we're living in preparation. Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians those wilderness habits. He says to his people there, let me make sure I don't mess it up, He says to them, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. He's talking to Christians who have it all. But then he says, we are fools for Christ's sake. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. And then you heard that powerful line. We labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. What is Paul talking about? Why would he say this? Why would he lift up and honor foolishness? Why would he lift up and honor weakness? Disrepute being the scum of the world, the refuse, the trash that gets thrown out back. Why would Paul identify with that? He identifies with it because he knows what it is to be a wilderness people. He knows what it is to be in the meanwhile. He knows what it is to be living in expectation. And so these wilderness habits, these practices are things like repentance. They're things like fasting. There are things like fasting even as the world feasts. <laughs> like holding yourself back and saying, I'm, I'm holding myself back because I'm living expectantly that the Lord is going to make all things right, even while the world gorges itself on Christmas cookies and eggnog. We live in a world that sometimes even makes its way inside the church. My question is, what are we going to do? Who are we going to be? This week, today, this morning, this hour, have you turned to the Lord in repentance? Have you wept over sin? Have you wept over your own sin? Have you wept 
over the sin of your people. Repentance is the first step to seeing the salvation of our Lord. And to know that we are not yet holy as we ought to be. We are not yet who we ought to be. We're still cowardly, but we should be courageous. We're still greedy when we should be generous. But secondly, have you embraced this weak and foolish world? Have you taken those who have less than yourselves and taken them in in a serious way? Sometimes during this part of the year, we have this way of thinking that we get real generous during this part of the year, which I'm so thankful for. Please be generous. But we get real generous in a way that kind of gives to people out of our wealth. Even maybe out of our own power or something like that. What Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians is that we would take the weak and the foolish of the world seriously in such a way that sees them not just as something for us or someone for us to help, but rather sees them as the very manger in which the Christ would come. That's not just nostalgic and full of sentiment, but that sees that the Lord comes in corners and places that we think it can never be. It could never be. I don't know where the Lord's speaking to you this morning. I don't know where He may be calling you to repentance where he may be calling you to trust. But I want to tell you my hope for you, for this church. Um, a couple weeks ago, we had a wedding here. I was with our Spanish congregation. Um, it was wonderful. The place was all kind of decked out um, in a different way than it's currently decked out. Um, and I, I had the honor, really, the honor of being able to officiate the wedding and I'm standing right here, and more or less I know what's going on. <laughs> it's all in Spanish and kind of being translated, all this sort of stuff. And then here comes the bride. And she comes right around that corner and comes down the center aisle, and I don't even know how her dress fit down the aisle. It was like, like everything. They, they kind of pulled out all the stuff. This thing was big, right? And beautiful and wonderful. And it reminded me of my wedding, and it reminded me of so many other weddings that I've been able to witness or be a part of. And, and, and part of it was so moving to me, I've been thinking about it for two weeks. Because weddings, I hope you know, are not actually about the bride. And are not actually about the groom. And the reason that weddings are so critically important for us to take seriously is that because they're a picture of Christ and His church. And I know that no bride who walks down any aisle is ever perfect in the way that she ought to be. I know that there are things that still need to be done in her life, but in that moment, there is nobody more perfect than she is. And, and the hope that we have in the gospel and the hope of Advent and the hope of the scriptures is that God is making us 
his church to be his bride. It's that God is making us slowly but surely to be the one who is ready to be married to him. And so this world may be hard and it may feel like the wilderness and your life may not feel like it's going the way it ought to go, but we're still getting dressed. We're still in this process of coming up to the actual wedding day. God is still putting graciousness and kindness and hope and faithfulness and love all over you and all over your life. The same way a a bride might put on a dress and earrings and a necklace and I don't know, a tiara or whatever they're doing these days, right? God is adorning us as a bride for her husband. The question is, are we going to be willing to stand up and receive those gifts? Those things start here. They start at the table. And I know sometimes we come to this table quickly and easily. And I know we talk about it as a meal. And yet we go, but I only get a little bite. <laughs> we get this little bite in expectation and hope of the wedding feast that is coming. That the Lord who is coming is going to throw open the doors, to pull out all the stops. And so as we come to this meal this morning, I hope you will come in expectation and hope of that meal, in expectation and hope of what he's doing in you to prepare you for that moment and for that day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need so deeply to be prepared for you. We need so deeply to be made yours. We need so deeply, Lord, to be your people who have been made holy by your word. Who have been made holy by your son. Lord, I pray that you would do that work in us today. Help us when we don't know how to repent. Help us when we don't know how to be faithful, when we don't know how to be prepared. Lord, give us the words to say as we come to this table that we might trust and believe and live faithfully in you.